So I want us to start with a question, and I want us to end with three questions. Here's the question I want us to start with, and I want you to really think about it, uh, is this. How do you think God would describe you right now? How do you think God would describe you right now? How you answer that question is what I want to talk about today. You know, resiliency requires all of us having meaningful relationships. And resilient disciples of Christ, they cultivate meaningful relationships with other followers of Jesus they desire to be around and become like themselves. To maintain those relationships, however, requires us all dealing with issues that are below the surface of our lives. And so the critical issue that we have raised again and again during this meaningful relationships part of our Listen, Love, Lead whole arc this year is for too long we have defined spiritual maturity separate from or by disconnecting it from emotional maturity. And we want to pull those things back together because not only they're biblical, but they're important for us to do so. And so last week we discussed Joseph and his family matters. And today we're going to look at an individual in the Old Testament by the name of David. And I know there's lots around his life that we could discuss, but we're going to hone in on a couple elements. And then in a couple of months, we'll hone in on some other ones. But we're going to look at David's life and his family lids, which in all of our lives and all of our families, these lids may be spoken or unspoken, but they're felt and experienced. How many of you know that lids do serve a helpful purpose? Like when someone hands you a hot, boiling hot beverage, it's got a lid on it. Are you alive? Are you okay? <laughs> Last week was the time change. You got one week. That's it. You're done. But anyways, when someone hands you a boiling hot beverage, the lid, it directs the goodness where it should go. And as opposed to where it, it shouldn't. And so lids, they serve a helpful and healthy purpose. If you and I do not embrace the gift of limits, we will burn out. We will flame out. All the purposes of God can be in our potential, but when we are emotionally drained, exhausted, and frayed, we are no good to anyone. And so healthy limits and lids, they are a gift from God. None of us possess all the spiritual gifts. And everyone said... Now you possess the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit reside all of the gifts and so God can use you any which way he desires differently in different seasons. However, you're going to dominantly move in a way that God has designed you. So for example, there have been times where God has used me in prophecy, but that's not really a typical thing. I don't have a prophetic gift at all, but when the spirit of prophecy is in a room, I can usually enter into it, but otherwise, no. Yet there are some of you with a gift of prophecy, that's just how it fires off for you. And so no one possesses all of the spiritual gifts, and this is good. It limits us and it focuses us as to how God wants to use us. We need the whole body of Christ, not just one person with one gift. How many of you know that your income is not unlimited? It has a top and it has a bottom. It has a limit. Embracing this is wise. Ignoring it, not so much. Um, your energy, your compassion, your intellect, they all have limits. My intellect has a phenomenally small limit. It's there. It's good. Like banks of a river, healthy limits, they focus us in the flow of the direction of God's purpose in our lives. They annoy us at times because it feels like they're constraining, but if they're from God, it is a good constraint. It is designed to get you where it is that God intends. 
But God isn't the only one in our lives. We all have a spiritual adversary, and then we have men and women just like you and I who are both saints and sinners, and so we're perfect in Christ, and we are imperfect in ourselves. We are complete in the finished work of the cross, and we are incomplete in where God is still working to make us more like Jesus. What Jesus was by his nature, we are working through our spiritual disciplines to become more like him. And so when you collide, when you put all of those things into a stew, what it really means is that there are healthy limits in our lives and there are unhealthy limits in our lives. There's the word of God over our lives, which directs our lives, and then there are the word of other people in our lives that can also limit our lives in unhealthy ways. And discerning whether a lid is healthy or unhealthy takes character, it takes humility, and it takes some maturity. A story where we see an earthly and a heavenly father present is in the life of David. It is this foreshadowing story of what we and I live in in the presence of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see it tells the story of Samuel the prophet anointing David to be the next king of Israel. Everyone say the next king. The next king is a space of stepping into and it's equally a step, a space of waiting, a step of development. He's anointed the next king, but he's not yet the next king. There is another king present that he has to serve and submit to. To the person beside you and say, that's fun. That's enjoyable. It's not. This is what's happening. Before David is anointed, to be the next king of Israel, the second one, before David is anointed, you know what he is? He's overlooked within his own family. The next king of Israel is recognized by Samuel, who represents God, but he's not recognized by David's father named Jesse. David's father, Jesse, has seven sons passed before Samuel and nothing, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11 to 13 reads, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? In other words, like, I know God has sent me here. You've had all your sons pass before. Is this all of them? And he said, Oh yeah, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. That's not a nice thing. We won't even sit down till he comes. Well, someone go get him quick. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes. Turn the person beside you and say, my goodness, you are ruddy and with beautiful eyes. <laughs> now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He was handsome. By the way, in the Old Testament, every single time that the Old Testament describes physical characteristics... It is designed for one purpose and one purpose alone, for you to dive deeper onto the internal characteristics, not to look there, but to say, actually, this isn't what the story is about. It's about something deeper. We in our culture do the opposite. Whenever you see in, this, in the world, when it says like, hey, this person is head and, told, head and shoulders taller than anyone else, it's to drive to probably a character deficit. So it's always the opposite. This is what's happening here. So here's David. He's ruddy, he has beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is really important. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, not in David, upon David from that day 
forward. Before he is anointed king, the very thing I just said a moment ago, the before he is anointed king, he is overlooked and forgotten by his father, but not by his heavenly father. So within this story, you have two fathers and how they view David is different. There may be a gap between how others see you and how God sees you. This gap is not about a gift of limits, but an incompleteness of vision. How many of you know that every single one of us have incomplete vision? In other words, I see what I see, but I don't see what God sees. Sometimes we have glimpses or we look into a mirror dimly. I am always nervous, a little bit nervous when people believe that they see everything clearly. That's, that just sends off a little bit, of, not about who Jesus has declared him to be. No, no, no. See that with absolute clarity because again, he has said it. But when it comes to what God, where God is at work, I always get a little bit nervous when it's like it has to be this way and it, and it can only look this way. And I'm like, ooh, careful, careful, careful. All of our visions are incomplete at best because we're finite. We don't see the whole picture as God sees it. And so again, I don't think you know, Jesse and his brothers are trying to be mean towards David. They just have incompleteness of vision like we do. We're finite. We see others and the world in darkened mirrors. God doesn't. And sometimes those who love us the most limit us to the greatest measure. And again, sometimes because it's of their own woundedness and brokenness, and that may spill out in family life, but other times it isn't. It's just simply they don't see, and they don't know what they don't know, and they can't see what they don't see. And so you and I have to wrestle into our, our lives defined by the incompleteness of the vision of people around us, or are they ultimately defined by who God says we are and how God sees us. And how do we know the difference between those things? This is not a limitation, by the way, for God. The incompleteness of how others see us is never a limitation for God. But it can become a lid for us to discover where God is at work. As it was in the life of David, it will be in your life. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16 is a promise for all of us that says this, a man's gift makes room for him. And so if we modernized it a touch, your gift will make room for you as you allow the Holy Spirit to grow you within your giftedness. Every time you say yes, you say yes, God, you can use me. I'll serve here. I'll step out here. Even when you fail, you are learning something about yourself and about the faithfulness of God. How many of you know that every time you fail, God remains faithful, steadfast, consistent, so failure isn't fatal, nor should it be final. It is giving us feedback in terms of where must I trust? How must I grow? Where must I grow to be more like Jesus? It's an important thing. Often, there comes a crucible moment. Everyone say a crucible moment. Often there comes a crucible moment where the battle of your boundary is defined. And if I was to step back a little bit, I would say this. If you're in your late teens, 20s, maybe even 30s, it's, you're going to wrestle with your calling of all, you know, God, what have you created me? What have you called me to do? What, what should I do with my life? Or maybe whom should I marry? Or what should I do? These questions are really important. And before you step into them, there will be a crucible battle. You might be in your 40s and 50s and trying to say, man, of, of all the things that I can do, God, what should I do in this season? Where should I next focus? What should this 
this be about? It's different in your 40s and 50s. And then if you get into your 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, of all the things that God has given me, how do I then give those to the next generation so that that which God did in my life is not wasted? I heard a story this week of somebody in their life who didn't have family. They were younger, um, so they were older. They didn't have family in their lives. They didn't have grandsons or grandchildren. But you know what they began to do? They got themselves a smartphone and they began to just use the little voice memos notes and they began to record all the lessons that God had taught them throughout their life for the purpose and they, of giving it away for others to begin to learn. Some of you might write a blog, others of you might write a book, and the book may not be published to anyone, but I encourage you, you may publish a book for your family of all the things that God has taught you. Hey, it's up to them whether they pick it up or not, but it's up to you whether you write it or not. So each stage of life is different, but there comes these crucible moments where you're, you, the, boundary, the boundaries of our battle or the battle of our boundaries are defined. That was hard for me to say. And so for David, a crucible moment occurs in the following chapters. I just said, he's anointed the next king of Israel. He's overlooked first by his family, but he's anointed. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's one of the famous stories in David's life where he fights a, a giant by the name of Goliath. Yet Goliath isn't actually the real giant of the story. He's actually the least, the least probable giant that's going to overcome. God's going to deal with Goliath. There's actually ones that proceed that are more important for us to look at. David, I'm not minimizing what Goliath was, by the way, but David is not yet king, but he's anointed to be the next king one day. And Saul, the current king, is not acting as the king should. And as a result, Israel for 40 days, everyone say 40 days, for 40 days is cowering in fear rather than arising in confidence. And the Philistines have a giant of a man named Goliath whom they see as undefeatable, pause. Every culture has giants that they believe are undefeatable. And it is no different in our day today. Every culture has giants that they will put up against where God is at work and what God is doing that seem in natural eyes undefeatable. But they aren't if you can see with development eyes. David rises early simply to bring provisions to his brothers on the front line. How many of you know God knows how to get you where you need to get? God knows how to get you where you need to get. How am I going to get there? I have no idea. And you may have no idea, but I promise you God knows how to get you where it is that you need to get. In this season, in this stage of your life, God knows how to get you there. And God can use sacred echoes, things that come back again and again and again to get you where he desires to position you. And so David is there and he's performing a different task. And when he hears Goliath defy God, when he hears what everybody else has been hearing for 40 days, when he hears what everybody else has been hearing for 40 days. When he hears it, he hears it differently. Due to his love for and anointing from God, David hears differently than how others hear. 
In 2006, it's a long time ago, I read an article and I pasted the article in, like a, a, in, my, in my computer and I pulled it back this week. And the article that I read in 2006 was from the Bank of Canada. This may sound odd to you. But in 2006, we used something called paper money. How many of you remember it? I know it still exists today. It's just like a rare unicorn you don't often see. But we used paper money. In 2006, I actually preached a sermon where I I brought paper money to our color photocopier and I photocopied it. Hang on. I only photocopied one side. So the other side was just blank and paper and then I held it up from a distance, right? And even after the service, those who were in the RCMP said, don't, 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 don't do that. Don't, like, don't. 2006, I was a lot dumber than I am today. I'm still dumb. I was just a lot dumber back then. But they were like, don't, don't, don't ever do that. That was a terrible example. But in 2006, I I read an article, and here's what it said. It said that those who work within the Bank of Canada who are specialists in detecting counterfeit money, do you know what they do? They don't actually study counterfeit money. What they actually do is they spend all of their time with the real thing, that the moment the fake is introduced or the counterfeit is introduced, they know it instantly because all they do is spend all of their time with the real thing. We have a generation that we are training and teaching to look about everything that's wrong with the world. And what we actually need to be doing is teaching them how to spend time with the real thing, teaching them how to spend time with Jesus so that when they discover the fake and the counterfeit, they will know it because they know what is true. Okay, so, so why do I say that? What is it about David? David and Goliath is not a story about courage. It is a story about clarity. And once there's clarity, courage follows. David, if you know anything about his life, he wrote most of the Psalms. We're gonna read it in just a moment. David, since he was young, has been spending time with God. So that when he steps into this moment, he hears the counterfeit in a way that Saul and the rest of the people of Israel are not hearing. He just hears it differently because he is spending time with God. Okay? Why does the enemy work overtime for you to not spend time with God? He has no problem with you spending all of your time railing against everything that is counterfeit and wrong in the world, but he will seek to rob your time when you spend it with God. Why? Because this is where you get clarity. This is where you get identity. This is the place Not merely coming to church, cultivating a relationship with God that includes coming to church with the body of Christ, but then equally Monday through Saturday, spending time with God so that you in your life can determine which is a healthy lid or an unhealthy lid, what is counterfeit and what is from the Lord. David is performing a different task. He hears Goliath defy God. But due to his love for and anointing from God, he hears differently than how the others hear. 1 Samuel 17, 26 says, David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? If you boil all that down, David essentially says, I know God, and because I know God, who is this guy? 
Now watch the moment. How many of you know David has correctly identified who God is and what the problem is? Watch what happens next. Watch the lids. Before he can get to fighting Goliath, he has to fight limitations and lids. So do you. The moment he identifies and correctly identifies what the true battle is, watch the crucible moment. Verses 28 and 29. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. When David said, I know God, who's this guy? His eldest brother heard it. And his anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those? Watch the language of diminishment. With whom have you left those few sheep (laughs) in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Excuse me? By the way, if you read back a little bit in this exact chapter, it actually has the opposite to that. The scripture and the word of the Lord for Samuel he brings is man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. In other words, only God knows the heart. Now we see an unhealthy family dynamic here. I know the presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, what did I say that was wrong? Do we not know who God is and this, this, not this uncircumcised Philistine attacking who God is? What, what's the deal? What's the problem? Before David can face Goliath, he has to face a limitation. Think about what would happen if David tried just to cower and conform to who his brother wanted him to be. After David experiences a family limitation, the next one he faces is a cultural limitation. And Saul said to David, Saul's the, the current king, David's the next one, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. You, you can't do it. <laughs> There's no way. And he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, you're not ready. Now, is Saul saying anything that is incorrect right here? No. The problem is Saul has incomplete vision. He doesn't see David nor the situation through God's perspective. He only sees it through his own. He's thinking about it from his own place of self-preservation. And David said this. Watch what David says. David doesn't say, I am so angry, man. No one's doing anything. I'm going to step up. He doesn't say that. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, when no one was looking and it didn't seem that it mattered at all, when I was all alone, this is who I know God to be and this is how God uses my life. David has clarity around two things, who God is and how God uses his life. And when he has clarity around those two things, though the limitations come, they do not define him. When you do not know who God is or how God desires to use your life, your life is an open book for everyone else to use your life for their benefit. This is what David knows. Where God has genuinely called you, trust God to work first in you and then through you. 
The story of David and Goliath contains courage, yes, but it's actually a story of communing with God, of knowing God, of clarity with God. David isn't arrogant, dismissive, or disrespectful to his family or Saul. Yet he equally doesn't allow their view of him to define who God says he is and how God uses him. What David does next, excuse me, is equal parts simple and a significant biblical principle. When no one is around, as I said a moment ago, David learned to trust God alone can deliver. Where God has genuinely called you, trust God again to work first in and then through you. And so David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go, in vain to go, excuse me, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off and he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. Come on. How do you think everybody in Israel felt when David brought a slingshot and some stones? Confident? Yeah, I I can't use Saul's armor. I got to go with what I know. And they were all going, well, maybe give the armor a try for a day, you know. Because this isn't just now about a sheep, a bear, and a lion. This is about a nation. And David, if you're wrong here, it's a nation. What does David know? David knows who God is. David knows how God works through his life. And David knows that he's been anointed to lead these people. In life, there are battles before the battle. Times to discern the difference between a gift of limits and the limiting narratives of other who from usually their incomplete vision, sometimes through their woundedness, but usually their incomplete vision, mistakenly try to define your destiny. What did David's brothers and Saul have in common? They saw David through the narrative of their own story. But to step into his divine destiny, nowhere does David throw away these relationships. But what he does is he prioritizes who God is and how God has worked in the past in his life. Loved ones, here's what David has the courage to do. Before David has the courage to face Goliath, He has to have the courage to be the main character in his own story and not live as a background character in somebody else's, even with those who he loves. There's a world of difference between discarding limiting beliefs and developing healthy boundaries. As God did in private with a lion and a bear, God now uses David to defeat Goliath. While facing Goliath took courage, yes, As I've said, hopefully now repeatedly today, this is really a story about clarity. From David of knowing who God has anointed him to be and how God most often uses his story.
my opening question to you was this. How do you think God would describe you right now? My concluding questions to you would be this. What are the healthy limits that God is inviting you to embrace? What are the healthy limits? What are the healthy limits that God is inviting you to embrace? Where is God saying no because he loves you? Do you know? What might be some unhealthy limiting beliefs others have placed on you that have become your own? I could never do that. I, I, I could never say that. Hi, Gary. And lastly, how are you cultivating daily? How are you daily cultivating clarity in knowing how God has made you and how he may desire to work in your story? You can do this from a child to a young person to an adult to the most mature adult in our midst. The stage of life is different, but getting clarity around these things is critical. Here's one thing I know. One thing I know. The moment you gave your life to Christ, God desired to use your life to make a difference in somebody else's life. one of the greatest ways that you and I make a difference in somebody else's life is to be who God has created and called us to be, to get healthy so that we can serve them in the best way possible. How many of you know that Jesse and his brothers could have handled that situation differently? And when it all played out, they got some feedback like, maybe I didn't see that one right well, in front of you all, unless you're in the front row, behind you then, there are names of people who right now don't know Jesus. But how many of you know Jesus knows them? And so I'm going to invite Pastor Lori to come back, and I'm going to invite you just to, if you look in the seat back pockets in front of you, you got to maybe got to move the cards a little bit. But there are, some, there are some cards in there with a bunch of names on them. And I'm going to encourage you to grab those now. We're going to take a moment and we're going to pray for our own lives, but we're also going to pray for each and every one of these lives.